as we read together. Uh, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, uh, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then they shall take some of the blood and and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its leg, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work. Uh, This is the very word of God. You inspired um, the very words themselves. Uh, You have preserved this, uh, your word for us, uh, several now thousand years And we pray that you would be at work in them and through them and by them. Uh, Use them uh, to draw our faith toward Christ, uh, to strengthen us, uh, and to conform us more and more into his image. For we ask it in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, there's something I've noticed over the years. Um, We Christians have... um, very different ways of talking about uh, judgment and deliverance. Uh, we have very different ways of, of thinking about and reacting to the concepts of judgment and salvation. We treat them fairly differently. And probably in your head right now, you're thinking, well, of course we do. Just listen to the words. One of them sounds Wonderful. One of them sounds not so wonderful. Hand raiser types, and and we have them in the PCA. Some of you may be hand raiser types, but hand raiser types raise their hands when when singing about salvation by grace alone. I've never ever seen anybody raise their hands in praise when singing about God's judgment of the nations. Now, okay, maybe it's because we don't sing a whole lot about God's judgment of the nations, even though that's everywhere in the Psalms. Maybe we should sing about that more. So, okay, to be fair, there's more opportunity to sing about salvation by grace alone than God judging 
the wicked. But are they not the same thing? Are they not sort of two ways of looking at the same coin? What is salvation by grace alone if there is no judgment? And what's so pain and difficult, painful and difficult about judgment if there is the opportunity of deliverance by grace alone? The reality is they're both about God's glory. And yet we treat one vastly different from the way we treat or react to the other. And in this passage, in Exodus 11 and 12, judgment and deliverance go together. Judgment and deliverance follow. They, they, they're two parts of the same whole in this passage. First, I want you to see that God promises judgment. All throughout chapter 11, and this really is all that chapter 11 is about. It's, it's, um, in fact, nothing actually happens in chapter 11. Um, God speak to Mo, speaks to Moses and tells Moses this is what's going to happen. And, and then Moses goes and tells Pharaoh this is what's going to happen. But nothing happens in chapter 11. In fact, nothing happens until later on in chapter 12. In fact, the passage we just read, the first 13 verses of chapter 12, again, nothing happened. It was people telling people, God telling Moses, Moses telling, Moses telling Pharaoh, Moses telling the Israelites, this is what's going to happen. There's a lot of explanation and description and, and warning, quite honestly. A, a warning both to the wicked and to, Israel, to the Egyptians and to the Israelites, both to, to Pharaoh and to Moses. There's a warning that there is judgment coming. God promises judgment in chapter 11. I suppose one of the downsides of, of taking the first nine plagues all in one sermon, um, we, we missed some of the details. Uh, you can go back and read. Do you, do, you wanna, do you want your Lord's Day reading assignment already? We're only a minute or two into the sermon. Do you want your... You, you can go back and read the, the first nine plagues and you find some details. You find places where um, Pharaoh finally says, okay, you can go, but you can't go far. Or, okay, you can go, but only the men can go. But what we find in chapter 11 is he reaches a point where, where the Lord tells Moses that what's ultimately going to happen, it happened, is this is going to be so, so judgment, this is going to be so heavy and so weighty and so painful for Pharaoh that he's ultimately going to drive you away completely, we're told in verse 1. In other words... It's going to be his pleasure for you to leave. And not just you, the men, and not for you to go just a little bit away, but everyone, all of you to leave and to leave completely. You do remember, um, lest, lest we forget, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. And they've been slaves in Egypt for now 400, well, more than 400 years. It means they don't have anything. They, they don't have an army. Um, they don't have money. 
They have a they have a county, they have a region, they have the land of Goshen, they have an area that 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 Pharaoh finally said, Look, y'all just go live up there and and get out of our way, but you're still gonna be slaves to us here in Egypt. Moses came back from Midian and he went into Pharaoh's office and said, Let my people go, and and Pharaoh said um, no, and, and he made things more difficult for them, more oppressive for them. He, he piled more work on top of them. Okay, you know, we used to provide you the straw to make the brick, but now you have to go get your own straw and still make the same amount of bricks as before. <coughs> the Israelites have nothing. There's nothing about them that, that sort of screams or communicates strength or power or might or for that matter i mean except for the fact that there's a bunch of them they're not really that dangerous they don't seem that dangerous and yet verses 2 and 3 of chapter 11 when they leave they're going to leave with gold and silver and we find out later clothes they're, they're going to walk out of Egypt with gold and silver jewelry from their neighbor. They, they, they plunder Egypt. And you think about what that means. Who do you plunder? Whom do you plunder? Would that be their proper grammar? I need the grammar. I think it's whom do you plunder? When you plunder somebody, it's because you have militarily defeated them. You sent your army into their land, you conquered them, and you took the best of their stuff. That's plundering. Israel has no army. Israel has no wealth. And yet, they leave Egypt as though they have conquered it, as though they've defeated it. And so there's this this picture of God judging Egypt through His people as though they've come through on some military campaign and taken the best of their stuff to be their own. Israel defeats Egypt without ever owning a weapon. The oppressed defeats the oppressor. The empty-handed leave with great wealth. God judges Egypt through the plundering of his people. Of course, that's not the worst of it. Because we find out in verses 4 through 8 that it actually, there's, there's something more. There's, there's more that happens. It's not just that the Israelites leave with stuff. It's that the Egyptians are left without something important to them. About midnight, God's going to pass through the land And the firstborn of everyone in the land will be struck dead. From Pharaoh's castle to the lowest slave girl behind the handmill. From the greatest to the least, including the cattle, the firstborn of all of them will be put to death in that night. Nobody's exempt from the the highest to the lowest The plague will touch everyone. You you remember Pharaoh Pharaoh thinks he's a god. I mean, the Egyptians think that Pharaoh is a god. And and yet Pharaoh, this god, is unable to protect his people. 
all the gods of, of Egypt that we've seen so far in the first nine plagues, these gods that supposedly give life to the Egyptians are unable to protect the Egyptians from this plague. Even Ra, the sun god, this happens at midnight when he's off taking a nap. He's off somewhere else. That's why it gets dark at night because Ra has to go catch up on his sleep. And so he leaves and goes somewhere else. And so this happens at midnight, which means Ra, their great sun god, is not there to protect the Egyptians. In fact, you read in, in verse 12 and 13, that the last two verses of our reading just a few minutes ago, that God is executing judgment on all the gods of Egypt. We saw this last week. Yahweh, the Lord, is showing Himself to be the one true God. And you're reminded that, that oh, that's right. Yahweh never slumbers or sleeps. He never grows tired. He never has to disappear. He never has to go home and take a, you know, a 15-minute power nap to catch up because he's just drained from the day. He didn't sleep well the night before. And, and so he goes home in the, you know, for a little siesta in the afternoon. God never needs that, that nap. He never disappears. He never isn't paying attention. And so God proves Himself to be the one true God. The gods of Egypt are unable to protect the Egyptians from this plague. Why the firstborn? Do you remember how the book began? Pharaoh hired midwives to kill Israelites. If a son is born, then you are to kill this child when it is born. If it's a girl, you can let her live. Pharaoh's way of of preventing Israel from outgrowing Egypt. And, and despite the fact that they were slaves for as long as they were, they were still increasing in number. Pharaoh's plan was to kill Israel's children. And so there's, there's punishment. It's retributive. There's the Lord's coming back to Pharaoh and going, the, the, the sin of your forefathers are now the, the consequence, the effects of the sin of your forefathers is being brought on you. It's a punishment for Israel, for what, for, on Egypt, for what they tried to do for Israel. Of course, the firstborn also has a double portion. He's, he's double honored. He gets double the inheritance of all the other kids. It's assumed that firstborn in Pharaoh's house will be the next Pharaoh. And, and if Pharaoh is unable to protect Pharaoh Jr. from Yahweh, then it just proves all over again that the gods of Egypt are weak and powerless against the one true God. God promises judgment. But then we also find that God provides deliverance. Yes, there's judgment coming. Yes, there's uh, this plague, this death of the firstborn that's coming. But in Exodus 12, we're given a way of escape. We're told, here's how you escape the judgment that is to come. Uh, chapter 12 is interesting because um, you get instructions for now. Well, now for Moses and Aaron. Uh, you get instructions for uh, how to observe this in the future in verses 14 to 20. Uh, you get a description of what happens that night. You get 
uh, a description of the people leaving um, and of, again, future participation and celebrating of this day. And yet, there's this great detail, precision, instruction in how to escape this coming judgment. It's so significant that the calendar changes. This now becomes the first month. You're, you're going to mark your calendar based on my deliverance. By the way, we do this. Today isn't the seventh day of the week. It's the first day of the week. Our calendar is marked. We as believers, as, as New Testament believers, our calendar is marked by God's deliverance. We meet on the first day of the week following the example of the apostles because the calendar changed. The, the Lord's day changed because Christ rose on the first day of the week. So the calendar is going to change for Israel. And, and they get these instructions, these details on, um, on how they're supposed to celebrate that night. There's a meal um, a meal to be eaten by family units. If, if the lamb's too big and your family's too small, go grab your next door neighbor. Have them come over and join you. And we celebrate this meal together. On the 10th day, you go out and you choose um, a one-year-old male lamb with no spot or blemish. Have you ever thought about how long that would take? Like, do you ever watch... There's a little glimpse into the hooker household. You ever watch the Westminster Kennel Club dog show? I love. But you watch it how long it takes them to examine the dachshund or the whippet. And, and you know, this is the model whippet. And we're trying to see if this is more model whippet than the model dachshund is for dachshunds. And it takes forever to get through any group. And, and they're not even showing you the whippet competition to check to find the model whippet who would represent all other whippets in the whatever group the whippet is in. I don't remember. It's not the coolest group, which is the, the sporting group, of course. Um, that's what they have to do. You've got to go out and sort of examine. Is, is there a broken bone? Is there an old broken bone that's mended and we never knew about? Does it have wonky teeth? Horns growing funny? Is it, is it miscolored, misshapen? Is it, I mean, you're going through examining all these one-year-old lambs for the one that is the most mop that you could actually win your group with in the Westminster Kennel Club dog show. Whip it. Uh, lamb show. <laughs> and then on the 14th day, you're supposed to kill this lamb that's been living in your house now for... For four days. Kids are not going to be happy about that. And there's a proper way to cook it. You roast it over fire. You do not boil it. And you serve it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. No raw meat. No boil. Eat it all that night. Anything left over, you have to burn. Oh, and by the way, when you come to dinner, um, come with your shoes. You don't come in your pajamas. 
You don't show up and, you know, you got home from work and you took off your work clothes, you put on your shorts and t-shirt, you got comfortable, and then you come to the dinner table. You come with your robe and your belt on, your robe gathered up, your sandals on, your staff in your hand. You have to eat one-handed. It all screams, we're getting ready to leave. You're eating this meal with expectation that at any given moment, you're walking out that door. You're eating that meal anticipating the cries coming from the land around you and your deliverance from oppression, from bondage. It all screams readiness. It all screams anticipation. It all screams we're going to get up and leave this place in a moment. You're eating, expecting God to make good on His promises. By the way, that's how we should eat the Lord's Supper. That's how we partake the Lord's Supper, is expecting that God has and will make good on His promises. And there's no detail left out. It's all this very precise instruction on how they're supposed to go about that night um, and, and how, to, how they're supposed to, to select and cook and eat this meal. But there's a, a verse in chapter 12 that I think if you were reading... Now, you know the Paul Harvey rest of the story. But if you could pretend for a moment that you don't, and if you could pretend for a moment you were reading through Exodus for the first time ever in your life, verse 7 of chapter 12, it sounds odd, admittedly. And it, and it almost sounds like it just belongs with all the other stuff about the animal. Right? You, you choose this lamb, you... you Slit its throat. Oh, by the way, collect some of the blood and, and rub some of, it, some of it on the doorpost and on the top of the door um, of your house. And then it goes on to cooking and eating. And, and you would almost go by it. You would almost ignore verse 7 if it weren't for verse 13. The blood on your doorpost is a sign. And when I see that blood, I will pass over your house. And the plague will not befall you. Now, I want to be careful. I don't want to imply that how you eat the meal doesn't matter. So don't, don't read more into what I'm about to say. But it doesn't say God's going to pass over the house and He's going to look in and make sure that you roasted your lamb to 165 degrees. And that you the herbs, the bitter herbs, are actually bitter enough. And that the unleavened bread is unleavened. And now you've removed the leaven from your head. That's already gone. That your belt is, you know, on the right. That you've, you've put the little pin in your belt through the right hole. on your. That's not what he sees. Now, again, I'm not saying that the, eating the meal doesn't matter. But what matters is the households covered by the blood of the Lamb are delivered. From judgment. He sees the blood and passes over that house. 
The households covered by the blood of the Lamb are delivered from judgment. We look down at verses 21 to 23. Again, the same sort of thing. Dip hyssop in the blood. You collect the blood. You dip the hyssop branch, this, this aromatic branch, in the, and, and you rub some on the doorpost and on the lintel. And again, verse 23, the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when He sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Verse 23 and verse 13 are almost the same. God will see the blood and pass over the house. Never are we told God will see that you ate the meal properly and pass over the house. Well, but hold on. You know what, though, God? I mean, okay, I forgot the blood on the door. I'm sorry. But I did everything else right. That's not what the passage says. You're looking to the blood of the Lamb as your deliverance. God promises judgment. God provides deliverance. This is, we don't even have to make this connection. It's surely plainly evident to all of us. This is a picture of our own salvation. I mean, this is true of us. How are we saved? Well, all who are covered by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, are delivered from the coming judgment for sin. All who are covered by the blood of the Lamb will be freed from slavery, from bondage, and ultimately taken to the promised land. But I want to ask one more question. To whom is this deliverance promised? You see, back in Genesis 3, verse 15, we have the gospel introduced. You're in the same, by the way, that's the same chapter as the fall. Sin introduced into the world, and in the exact same chapter, Genesis 3.15, we get the gospel preached for the first time ever. And it's preached to the serpent. Not to Adam, not to Eve. It's a warning to the serpent. Your descendant is going to injure, damage the seed of the woman. However, she, her seed, is going to deal the crushing blow to you. There's a promise of judgment and a promise of deliverance in the exact same sentence in Genesis 3, but given, preached to the serpent. And, and that's the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is the unfolding of that promise. The whole rest of the Bible says we're watching that unfold. Which means Pharaoh stands as a representative of the seed of the serpent. His greatest delight in life would be the destruction of God and his people. If I could remove God from his throne and destroy his people, then I would win. That is Pharaoh's goal. That is his life dream, as we've read so far. He stands as a, a representative of the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent is at work against the seed of the woman. But is this deliverance merely genealogical? 
Is it merely about ethnic or national Israel? Technically, national Israel doesn't even exist yet. They're being formed right now. Israel as a nation is being formed right in this chapter. Is this about descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Or is it about something more? Turn with me to chapter 9. And let me show you something real quick. Again, one of the casualties of nine plagues in one sermon. Chapter 9, verse 20. And then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Even in Pharaoh's own house, there are people who hear the warning of the coming hail. And they say, we've seen this God deliver way too many times on his promises. We're going out there and we're going to grab our cattle and we're going to grab our servants and we're going to call them in and we're going to hang out inside. They believe God's promise enough to act on it. Well, turn with me back to chapter 12. In chapter 12, um, in verses 33 to 42, we finally get the Exodus. And I want you to see what happens in verses 37 and 38. The people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Who's a mixed multitude? Surely the writer doesn't mean women and men, because it sounds weird in light of verse 37. Verse 37 said men and women. So 38 doesn't mean men and women. I think he's saying, telling us that there were Egyptians who actually slaughtered a lamb, painted that blood on their door, and is coming out with the Israelites. Israel, God's people, the church, has always been people from every tongue and tribe and nation. It's always been, it's never been purely a genealogical, ethnic, national statement. It's always been, as Paul tells us in Romans, that true Israel are those who receive God's promises and look to Him in faith, not those who are descended by Abraham. It's not merely a genealogy question. It's a faith question. Israel's never been ethnically pure. And that's true of the church. Salvation has always been for any who will look to God as their Savior, as their Deliverer. There are foreigners embracing the hope of deliverance through the blood of the Lamb, even in Exodus 12. They're identifying themselves as God's people. How do we apply this passage to us? Let me just make... We, we actually could spend hours on this. Let me just make a couple of, of applications. First and foremost, let me, let me call attention to something. Notice that judgment and deliverance are God's idea. 
God initiates all of it. Moses never gets to sort of pull up at the conference table and have, you know, hash it out. Let's, let's figure out. We had actually had a, we had, we had a session meeting this morning. We filled that back room with smoke and turned the lights out to make it. You know, I'm, okay, I'm kidding. Um, but, you know, we had this notion of session meeting. You know, you know, um, and we actually decided some stuff. But we all sit there and go, what about this? How about this? Ooh, I didn't think about that. Now, there's an idea I didn't think about. And so, ooh, what about Moses never gets to sit at that table. Moses never goes, but hold on a second, God. Don't you think that sounds a little harsh? Or, do you have to wait a week? Could we go ahead and do this now? Wait, are you sure next week's good? I mean, we can wait two weeks. I'm supposed to have vacation next week. I'm supposed to be gone. Judgment and deliverance are always God's idea. He initiates all of it. All the plagues, how they work, when they happen, He warns, He advises, He says, hey Moses, watch out, this is going to happen and this is what Israel has to do. And, and nobody in Israel got to go, hold on a second. A one-year-old lamb, really, could we... How about a different animal? How about something we don't... How about a crow? Nobody likes crows. Can we... How about a crow? There's, there's none of that. Judgment and deliverance. God is sovereign in both judgment and in salvation. Second, salvation is all of grace. The Israelites weren't saved because of all the things they did right. The Israelites weren't saved because they were better than everybody else. They weren't saved because they could trace their genealogy to Abraham. They were saved because they were covered by the blood of the Lamb. The reality is, their firstborn would have died too, but for that Lamb. In other words, the only way they were spared the plague, the only way they were spared that death is something else, someone else had to die in his place. The death of the Lamb meant the salvation of the firstborn. The lamb died so they wouldn't have to. They're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And third, let me just make this connection. Jesus was celebrating the Passover when He instituted the new covenant meal. A meal that looks to Him as the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And Christ will indeed come again to judge the world and the only way of escape is to be covered by the blood of the lamb not a one-year-old that has to live in your house for four days before you slit its throat but the true lamb the greater lamb the lamb to which this lamb pointed the lord jesus christ there was one way of deliverance from egypt there is only one way of salvation for us now and that is the blood of christ are you trusting in him alone for your salvation let's pray together Our Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are the greater Lamb, that You are the One to whom all of these other lambs in Exodus would point. That we, if we are covered, that we, our household, covered by the, the blood of Christ, we too find deliverance from bondage, deliverance from slavery to sin. We thank You for this picture of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ, the true Lamb alone.
alone. And we pray that you would remind us daily that our salvation is all of your grace. And would you also take with us that that gospel message that we might gather the nations in. That we might on our on our way out of Egypt, as it were, uh, might grab others to come with us. People from every tongue and tribe and nation. We pray all of this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.